Well, open your Bibles to Luke 23. This is, uh, of course, the end of Luke's gospel that we're turning to, the sort of pinnacle to which every gospel writer marches in the story of the crucifixion and the resurrection of our Savior. It is that glorious event that we draw such special attention to on a day like this, the day of Easter. And we look here today at this uh, chapter, but we must realize as we do that it is the ending, if you will, of a long story. It is the, the end, if you will, of a long pathway. And in Luke's gospel, longer than most others. In fact, Luke's gospel really begins, if you will, a march toward Jerusalem and a march towards the cross all the way back in chapter 9. People call it sort of the travel log or the journey log of the gospel of Luke as he recounts for us the final months of Christ's life and all of the ins and outs as he goes through town after town and presenting the gospel to different people in various contexts. And as you move through that, if you are reading it carefully, you can't, be, uh, you can't help but be stirred with grief over the kind of loneliness that Christ must have experienced. It was a long and indeed a very lonely journey. Lonely not because he was alone physically, but lonely because as he went along the way, no one seemed to understand what was going on. His life was swirling towards its end. The grief was building in his heart. And even his closest friends didn't seem to realize it. You remember this all the way back in chapter 9, whenever he was talking to his disciples, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. And it was at that point that Peter gave his sort of uh, infamous response, basically rebuking Jesus for some sort of insanity. And Jesus has has to in turn rebuke Peter for making himself at that moment an instrument of Satan. And then we, we read that the disciples didn't understand Jesus' statement and it was concealed for them so that they would not perceive it, but they were afraid to ask him about what he was saying. All that was indicative of the next few months and really culminated in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was finally arrested and they all flee and abandon him. We go from that to watching the response of others along the way. Pilate, most famously, recognizing Jesus in his innocence, even declaring five times publicly that Jesus was innocent, but eventually out of really self-love and an interest in self-preservation, he folds and yields to the pressures of the crowds and the, the continuity of his own career, wanting to save himself, he hands Jesus over to the will of the people. You see the reaction of, of the, the march towards the cross through the Pharisees who scheme to capture Jesus, who misrepresent him before Pilate, who violate justice by having all sort of trumped up trials in the middle of the night, illegal trials really, who gloat in their victory over him at the foot of the cross. 
You see the reactions to Jesus from crowds who along the way allow themselves to be swayed and finally to call for the crucifixion of Christ. And then on the day of His crucifixion, they flock to to mock Him and to ridicule Him, goaded on by the religious leaders, those who just a few days earlier had welcomed Him to Jerusalem were now joining in the mobs calling for His crucifixion. All the way up to the very moment of the crucifixion, you see the reaction of a lone man, a thief on the cross, who is ridiculing Christ along with all the others, while even his companion who initially joined in the mockery and ridicule then came under conviction recognizes Jesus' repentance and innocence, recognizes Jesus' innocence and repents and found hope and found salvation even in his last moments of life. You and eventually, as you move on through this text, you eventually see the reaction of one of the Roman soldiers who will respond to Jesus' death by believing in Him. You see the crowds in verse 48 of Luke 23 who respond ultimately to this with grief and sorrow beating their breasts. Through all this, you see all these people around Christ, all of their reactions, all of their responses to what's going on, most of them oblivious to it all and what it means. But through all of this, through all of those chapters, there's one person whose response is never commented on specifically. That person is God. You might assume his response. You might have assumed what it was all along the way. You might have assumed his grief and his pain. You may have assumed his displeasure and his anger about what's taking place. But Luke doesn't leave us just to assume the response of Christ because in verses 44 through 46 of Luke 23, he actually tells us specifically what was God's response to all of this. And let me just read those verses to you. He says in verse 44, It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. These verses detail for us what has really been absent the whole way along Jesus' pathway to the cross. They detail for us God's response, the divine response to the death of His Son. God didn't leave us just to assume what His response would be by extrapolating all that we know about Him from the rest of Scripture, all that we know about Him from His law. He gave us direct visible manifestation in a very dramatic way of what he thought of the events that day. And I want you to take note with me of three responses of God, the Father, to the death of Christ on the cross that ultimately are the commentary on the cross. Verse 44 says it was the sixth hour. It was at that point uh, noon, they would have calculated 
the hours based on the daylight. That's the way they calculated them, not from our traditional midnight. This was the, the midday. Uh, Mark 15.25 uh, says that this all was taking place as well at the midday when they crucified Christ. This was um, all happening, if you will, at the apex at the apex of the day when the sun would have been at its brightest, when all of these things were happening, we find the, the, the very moment of, of God's reaction to the cross. This is God's wrath. God's wrath. The first miracle, if you will, that took place in these few hours. We're told that the sun was darkened. Darkness, if you will, fell over the whole land from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. A blanket of darkness. Matthew 7, uh, 27, 51 says, This whole darkness ended with a great earthquake so massive that it split rocks in two and busted open tombs. And it's so interesting, up to this point, the whole place had been filled with commotion. There had been a, the, the regular bustle, if you will, of the Passover day, the Passover celebration. There was, along with all that, the mocking and the jeering of the crowd. If you were to look back in verses 35 through 37, you see all of that. It wasn't just the crowds, the rulers were there. They were adding their voices to all the passers-by who were sneering at Christ. There was all the activity of tens of, uh, tens of thousands of people who were on their way to Jerusalem preparing for the Passover, uh, blaspheming and taunting Christ as they passed Him. There were soldiers who were at Jesus' feet playing games, gambling for His garments, we're told in the Scripture. All these people carrying on all of their activities. Josephus tells us there would have been a swelling of the crowds in Jerusalem going from a typical maybe 100,000 people to almost 250,000 during the Passover feast. So the, the streets would have been absolutely jammed with the, the murmuring and the, uh, the bustling of all the crowds, not to mention the bleeding of all the lambs and the goats and the birds and all the sacrifices that were being brought to the temple. And then you have this. Total blackout. Total blackout. And the interesting thing is that not one thing is recorded to have been said by any of the passers-by during this period of darkness. Nobody says anything. It's as if everything goes quiet. They are completely dumbfounded as they're struck with fear. And when the light does emerge again later, some of the very people who had been mocking suddenly down in verse 48 we find them pounding their chest in grief. Darkness covers the whole land and for three hours brings everything to a halt in Israel. It's interesting uh, if you look at the historical details of all this because the word land here is literally the word for world. And according to the writings of the early church, 
this supernatural darkness was actually noted throughout the entire world at that time. In fact, some of the early church fathers actually debated non-Christian writers about what caused this darkness. It was on record in their scientific annals. And yet the non-Christians claimed that it was an eclipse, which Christians pointed out was, was astronomically impossible during a full moon, which was the case with the Passover. The sun and the moon would have been too far apart for an eclipse. Side, no one had ever seen an eclipse that lasted three hours. In 220 AD, the Christian writer Julius Africanus critiqued the pagan historian Thales for trying to explain the event as a massive eclipse. Another pagan writer, Phlegon, also notes a massive eclipse accompanied by an earthquake that actually destroyed part of the city of Nicaea in Turkey on this very day. The church father Tertullian in his book Apologeticum responded to one pagan skeptic saying, quote, at the moment of Christ's death, the light departed from the sun and the land was darkened at noonday, which wonder, he says, is related in your own annals and preserved in your own archives to this day, end quote. So all these events eventually became a powerful apologetic for Christians Obviously, they say, not a natural occurrence. It was a supernatural event. In fact, Luke says the sun was obscured. Literally, it says failed. The sun failed during this time. God miraculously hid the light of the sun for the three final hours of Christ on the cross. But why? That's really the question, right? Why did he do that? What did all this mean? Why this miracle of darkness on the cross? Well, you probably need a little Old Testament background to understand. Simply put, God's judgment and His wrath have always been associated with darkness. From the beginning of Scripture, this has been one of the signs of God's wrath, sort of like in Exodus 19 when the children of Israel approached Mount Sinai, the text says a thick cloud covered the mountain. And Moses speaks in Deuteronomy 4.11 saying, you came near, he's looking back, he says, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens and darkness and cloud and thick gloom covered it, he says. You remember darkness was even the final plague of the, excuse me, the final of the, of the nine plagues before the judgment of the firstborn. He poured out darkness on the whole earth. Exodus 10 says, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky and that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky And there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. The darkness during the time of Christ was probably something like that. Darkness has always been associated with God's judgment. 
It was a familiar theme in the Old Testament and particularly was picked up by the later prophets when it came to the day of the Lord. And they speak about the day of the Lord and its judgment being associated with this darkness as well. Joel 2 says that in the day of the Lord, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. He says later on in Joel 2, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Zephaniah, he says, near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly, the day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So as you move through the Old Testament, if you're attentive at all to what it's saying, you know this. You know that darkness from the Exodus to the day of the Lord has always been associated with judgment. Darkness was associated not only with God's Judgment, but particularly with God's presence in judgment. It was always associated with some moment when God, if you will, interacted with His creation specifically in judgment. Images of the day of the Lord particularly were associated with His final judgment and His coming. And so what we have here on the cross is really, if you will, God giving His reaction to this whole event, His initial reaction. And it's one of darkness and judgment. From noon until three, God, if you will, showed up at the cross and He shows up in wrath. It's interesting though, the interesting thing is it isn't wrath against the Romans. It isn't wrath against the Jewish leaders. It isn't wrath even on the people. If you go back just a few verses, Jesus was walking through the streets uh, on His way to the crucifixion. And we read in um, verse 27, There followed Him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for Him. And turning to them, Jesus says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for Me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Jesus had warned them of judgment, but it wasn't judgment today. It was a coming judgment, a day of judgment that was yet future. But this darkness bespeaks of God's wrath, but it's not wrath against the people. It's not wrath against the Romans or the Jews or the leaders or anything uh, like that. This was God's wrath on His Son. It's the point on the cross of God unleashing all of His fury and all of His wrath on Jesus Christ. And for three hours, Jesus suffers under it. And during those three hours, no words are recorded, not even from Christ. Nothing in Scripture in any of the Gospels. Mark 15.33 says, When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour... 
Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The fury and the wrath and the anger of God was poured out on Christ for three hours. For three hours, he felt the brunt of separation from God, of shame, of scorn in the face of God's rejection. And at the end, the silence is broken when Jesus cries out with this lament. That darkness and that fury is really the fate that Christ suffered in our place. For those of us who are in Christ, It was Him bearing the wrath of God on our behalf. But you know, it's the the same fate for those who are not in Christ. It's a fate, however, that you yourself will experience. And it won't be for three hours, and it won't be just momentarily on a cross. It'll be an eternal darkness. Scripture refers to hell as outer darkness. A place of anguish and weeping. A place of gnashing of teeth. The difference though is in hell, it is not just a few hours. It is eternal darkness. Never-ending darkness, it says. Unending anguish, enduring the fury of God's wrath for all eternity because of your rebellion against Him, because of your disregard for Him and His ways and His laws. All of the penalty for all of your sins poured out for all of, all of eternity. Best described by the lonely despair of darkness. That's the penalty that awaits all sin. God promises that all sin will suffer this punishment. If you die in your sins, that will be your destiny. But on the cross that day, on the cross that day, outer darkness, hell, came to earth. It came to earth. God's fury and wrath poured out that day, not on mankind, not on you, but on Christ. And Jesus takes the onslaught of all his fury, not because he had sins of his own, that he earned this wrath somehow. The Bible says that Jesus was without sins. But Jesus took the onslaught of God's wrath so that he could provide for you an escape. For me, an escape. A way of salvation. A way of forgiveness. So that all the darkness of hell could be fully satisfied on Him. Hell came to earth that day so that if you trust in Christ, you'll never have to go there. You'll never have to experience that. Well, that sort of opens up our understanding of God's second response, if you will, to the cross of Christ and the commentary it provides because not only do you see God's wrath against His Son, But in verse 45, there at the end, you also see God's welcome for separated sinners. God's welcome for separated sinners. Luke's Luke's comment there is that the veil of the temple was torn in two. 
This was, of course, the temple that stood in Jerusalem. And it's pretty significant because historians tell us that this veil was 80 feet high or or 24 meters high. It was, in other words, it was as tall as a tree. It was not only that massive, 20 Uh, 24 meters, but it was 7 meters wide, 24 feet wide. And we're told several inches thick. This was an enormous uh, piece of cloth, if you will. And what Luke tells us is that it was ripped right down the middle, right at the moment that Christ died. This was, of course, the veil that covered the innermost temple of the a chamber of the temple. It was what we commonly refer to as the Holy of Holies. It was that room into which no one was allowed to enter because it was thought to represent the presence of God. This was the place that if you were to enter it, it was a death sentence because no one was thought to be able to enter into the presence of God without losing his life, without being struck down by the very judgment of God. And so no one entered that room except once a year on the Day of Atonement when one person, the high priest, could enter in order to offer a sacrifice for all of Israel. This veil was vital. It was a symbolic reminder that sin renders... Every one of us unfit for God's presence. Really unfit to be with Him, separated, not just physically, but separated, more important, spiritually, in every way from God. And yet the tearing of this curtain at the moment of Jesus' death dramatically symbolized that His sacrifice makes God accessible. He does that, of course, by atoning for your sins. He does that with a sacrifice that God accepts on your behalf if you have faith in Christ. What happens is as the darkness lifted that day, God demonstrates in a dramatic way that the entire system of sacrifices and all the lambs and all the history of the law even all the history of the priesthood itself, all of that is unnecessary. It is done away at that moment. And the separation between mankind and God is removed because sin is removed. The sacrifice of Christ is accepted. The way into the holiest place with God is now open. And those who trust in Christ now have free and direct access to the throne of grace without the need of any ritual, without the need of any priest, without the need of any sacrifice. And you need to understand that this ripping takes place, we're told, at the end of this darkness, at the end of these three hours, right as the darkness was lifted, but also right in the middle of the Passover feast. Whereas I said, Josephus tells us 250,000 people would have flooded the streets with all of their lambs and all those things being sacrificed in the temple of that day. It would have been a massive workload, if you will, as the priests were trying to handle all those lambs. And and even now, with the delay that would have come for, because of all the darkness over the last three hours, there would have been a mad rush to slaughter these animals as quickly as possible. 
People paralyzed previously, no doubt, but now frantically trying to catch up and jam-packed into the temple. And just as they were beginning to hustle, if you will, through the backlog of all these Passover lambs, they hear a noise behind them in the temple. A massive ripping and tearing sound as the very veil of the temple is ripped in two. And at that same moment, a massive earthquake that hits. There's no telling what was going through people's minds, but we know what was going through God's mind. The veil was torn, the sacrifice was accepted, the way was opened. And sinners, once separated because of their sin, are now given free and open access to God with no ritual, with no priest, with no sacrifice necessary beyond that of Christ. What brings us to one final response from God to the death of Christ? You see His wrath against His Son. You see His welcoming of separated sinners. But we need to take note in verse 46 of His reception of the triumphant Savior. God's reception of the triumphant Savior. Verse 46 we read, Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit and having said this he breathed his last this is really amazing Jesus who only moments before had cried out in despair that God had forsaken him now he cries out in magnificent trust committing his spirit into the very same hands that had just darkened the sky and shook the earth in all of his fury. Something's changed. Something amazing, something magnificent in those final moments of the cross. In those final moments, God had accepted the sacrifice of Christ. He'd poured out all of his wrath against sin. His righteous requirements that sin be punished were completely satisfied. And now, because of that, there's no more anger, no more wrath, no more fury, no more darkness. And because it's all satisfied in a moment, all that wrath is turned to sweet communion. The sweet communion of a loving father receiving his son back to himself. And it's the first validation that God was completely satisfied with the sacrifice that Christ had offered. Nothing else was demanded. It's at this moment, by the way, that John records Jesus' words, to die, it is finished. John says he uttered those words with a loud voice and then apparently followed them up with the final words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's interesting that in, in both cases, the gospel writers, whether it's John or whether it's Luke, note that Jesus' final words with, were with a loud voice. Normally, the victims of crucifixions die by finally giving in to absolute exhaustion. They would have been tethered to the cross with ropes, but eventually 
affixed there with nails through their hands and through their feet, but they didn't actually die from the nails or even from the blood loss. They normally died through asphyxiation. That is to say that in that position of hanging by your hands, it would have brought pressure into your chest and your lungs so that you couldn't breathe without lifting yourself on the nails of your feet. And yet, enduring that process through a a number of hours and sometimes even days, people would eventually just get to the point of exhaustion where they couldn't lift themselves anymore to take another breath and they would die of suffocation, asphyxiation, barely able to muster the strength to lift themselves, barely able to whisper. Jesus had been on the cross now only six hours. As I said, some victims would last up to two, maybe sometimes three days. And he shows signs that he has plenty of strength remaining as he cries out with a loud voice. And yet he cries out and Luke says he breathed his last except nusin is the word, he expended his spirit. And it's interesting, in all the gospel writers, none of the writers ever say that Jesus died. They never use the standard word, if you will, for death. John says he gave up his spirit. Matthew says he yielded up his spirit. Luke and Mark use this word, except nusin. He, he, he expended his spirit. Yeah, I think all of this is because I don't think Jesus died a natural death. In fact, Mark 15, Joseph of Arimathea, whenever he realizes that Jesus is no longer alive, he goes and he informs Pilate that Jesus was dead and asked for his body, and the governor, we're told, is surprised. And he actually has to have his centurions go validate the death. He can't believe it happened. Jesus has told his disciples, he says, no one has taken my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This is what was taking place on the cross. Jesus had accomplished his work. The wrath of God had been poured out. The sacrifice had been accepted. Access to God had been opened. And at that point, Jesus' work was finished. And so he yields up his spirit into the hands of God. And guess what? The Father received him. The very God who only moments earlier had visited hell on earth. The very God who only moments earlier was pouring out all of his wrath and all of his fury on Christ is now suddenly the God who opens His arms with immense love to receive His Son. This is the power of the cross. It's the power to change your relationship to God. It's the power to change you from being someone who's under the wrath and the fury of God to being someone who's received by Him 
as his own beloved child. That's what was taking place on the cross. That's what it was all really all about. And here you, going through your day and your week and your life, wondering as you go along why, why all the struggle, why all the turmoil, why all the, why all the sense of, of emptiness in my heart. Why, why does God feel so far away from me? Maybe you're beginning to ask yourself, does God hate me? Does God, is God angry with me? Whatever it might be. Well, let me tell you, listen, listen to me very clearly. If you're not in Christ, the answer is yes. The scripture says that God is angry with sinners every day. Scripture actually says that we're born as children of wrath. That is to say, we're born alienated from God and we're born under His judgment. And what you experience in the guilt of your conscience and the despair in your heart, what you're experiencing is not just some emotional downturn, it isn't just some fit of depression. It may very well be the wrath of God. But the beauty of the cross is this. That because of the sacrifice that Christ gave, that very God who pours out His darkness and His wrath and His anger right now in your conscience, one day for all eternity, in your resurrected body, that very same God can go from a God of fury and wrath to a God of love. And it's all because of the sacrifice of Christ. So our challenge to you today is on this Easter day, this resurrection day, the day that confirms by Christ's resurrection His victory over sin and death. Our challenge to you today is that you wouldn't leave here still under God's wrath. You wouldn't leave here under all that darkness and all that gloom, but that you would respond to the cross. You'd respond the way that Jesus says you ought to respond. He says to all of his disciples, he says, look, if you want to come after me, if you want to be my disciple, there's one way to do it. You take up your cross. You deny yourself. You lose your life, he says, so that you might gain life. And what kind of life is it to lose? A life of despair, a life of shame, a life of gloom because of all your rebellion against God. That's what you give up. And you take up a life of following Him. God is ready. God is ready for all those who do that. To receive them as He received His Son. To receive them as His child. Adopted to His family. Forgiven of their sins. And standing in the hope of resurrected life. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Father, we're grateful for these reminders today, thankful that we had such a Savior who took all of your wrath for us. We're grateful that He was cast into outer darkness for those hours. We're grateful that He bore even the separation, not because He deserved it, but we do, O Lord. We deserve your wrath. We deserve your fury. We deserve outer darkness because we have rebelled against you. But Lord, you've provided a way of salvation. 
And our prayer for today is for all those who don't know that way of salvation, that forgiveness, the cleansing and wiping away of their sins. We pray for them that they would see the cross today put on display before them and the, ven- uh, the, the, the veil rent in two, the access opened up to your presence. Lord, I pray that they would turn away from their life of despair and sin. I pray that they would turn to a life, a resurrected life, an eternal life found in the Savior. Lord, we pray for these things, having experienced and tasted of them ourselves, knowing the joys of your salvation. We pray, Father, that you would spread that joy and your glory. And it's to that end that we pray. Amen.